listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get into it. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Did you notice the catechism question that we read this morning? I think it's especially appropriate in light of our subject matter today. We're going to talk about what is a, oftentimes a difficult, um, emotionally challenging subject today of suffering. And I think the context that Peter is writing about is a sort of social persecution for being a Christian. But I think that the principles that we'll look at today have application for not just persecution for being a Christian, whether it's social or verbal or even physical, but also, in a way, I think it applies to the challenges of all of the Christian life and suffering and affliction, whatever that may be, whether it's physical or, or, or uh, social or whatever. This idea that we live in a broken world and things are not the way they should be, and that we worship this God who is all-powerful. And, and to our finite human minds, that oftentimes presents a sort of struggle in our souls that we believe in a God who's sovereign and all-powerful and all-good, but yet this world is broken and we are enduring pain and trial and difficulty, disease, sickness, hardship, affliction, you name it. And, and I think if we're honest with each other, that, that presents like some dissonance, like a gap in our soul, and, and so it, this is a difficult topic for us to think about, and one that I think we need to be very gracious towards one another. But did you notice what we read in the catechism that where is Jesus now? It says that he is, one of the things that he is doing is he is interceding for us, and Jesus's prayers are not ineffective, and God knows the future. In fact, he's the beginning and the end. And so just as an outset, that means that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good and the future is determined according to God's wise counsel and God the Son, whose prayers are always answered, is praying to God the Father, but yet we still deal with difficulty in trial, that means that there must be some good, gracious design of the Trinity in our current circumstance, any other option sends us spinning off into despair. And so as we look at this text today, uh, let's, let's grab a hold of the goodness and the power of God. And by His Spirit, I pray that we would be able to pull that down into our lives and have it touch ground zero of our hearts. Let me pray, then we'll read and, and look at this text and, and summarize it, and then see the Lord's gospel proclaimed through baptism. Father, thank you for these, these people. I love them. I, I am so grateful to be one of their pastors and to be here 
in this time, in this place, with these people. Help us, Lord, think biblically about suffering. Help us to be infused with a Christ-saturated, Holy Spirit-fueled perspective on this broken world around us and our broken lives and the glorious future that awaits us for those of us that are in Christ. And for those of us that are not in Christ, that are not trusting in Jesus' work, Lord, would you be so kind as to open their eyes so that they can see Jesus today? And would you give them the gift of faith and repentance and a heart to believe in Jesus so that they would turn away from trusting in themselves and that they would turn away from broken, counterfeit pleasures that masquerade as joy and they would turn in faith and trust to Jesus who alone can satisfy. I pray that you would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read starting in verse 12 of chapter 4. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So again, let me stop there and just pause and say that remember as we've been saying up to this point that the context of Peter's letter is he's writing to a group of Christians who are living in modern day Turkey scattered throughout that area of Turkey that we would know of as today who are undergoing increasingly difficult and hostile persecution at the hands of unbelievers and the hands of the Roman Empire. It's probably at this level still, still persecution for uh, being Christians in the form of just verbal scorn and being social outcasts. It's probably not physical martyrdom or suffering yet, but it certainly will be, as we know from the history of the church, in a few years and coming decades. And so certainly the Holy Spirit through Peter is wanting to prepare people for what they're encountering now and will encounter in the future. And Peter tells them not to be shocked or surprised when these things happen. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And he's not saying there that Christ's suffering on the cross is incomplete and that we need to sort of make up anything that's lacking in Jesus' death by, you know, sort of being, you know, uh, uh, masochists and just bringing pain upon ourselves. No, Jesus suffered once for all. It was sufficient. But because a servant is not greater than his master, we will be like Jesus. And so we should rejoice insofar as our lives reflect Jesus' life on earth when he was mistreated. So rejoice so far, insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, meaning when Jesus comes again and makes all things right. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So there's not just this future joy when Jesus is revealed. There is this present satisfaction and blessing that comes when we are insulted as Christians for the name of Christ. And when that happens, not just a future joy that will be revealed, but a present reality that the spirit of glory and God rests on us. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list. So don't think, oh good, well I'm not one of those. So um, all of my suffering is clearly not my fault. No, I think Peter is making the point that don't suffer because of your own sin. In other words, don't be an abrasive knucklehead and let that be the reason that you're having trouble in society. Let it be because of your righteous stand for Christ. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And if you have the ESV study Bible that we sell in the Resource Center, there's a good little note there on verse 18 that where that phrase where it says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, I don't think that means that we are barely saved or that Jesus was in this tug of war with the devil and, you know, in the last few seconds before they rang the bell, he, he like pulled us across the line. No, I, I think that that means that we will be saved as we, we are saved by Jesus, but that that salvation that we walk in then will be attended with and accompanied by difficulty in our life. And if the believer who is secure in Christ is enduring difficulty, uh, what will become of the ungodly? There's a contrast there. And then verse 19, which was quoted for us already this morning, which I think is the point of this passage in, in just one sentence. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, three summary thoughts, and then we'll rejoice in the gospel as our friends are baptized this morning. The first is, and this is not rocket science, this is one of the things Peter, being kind of a, a, a dense-headed guy, remember when we were going through Mark and Peter was a little slow on the uptake? Well, I identify with Peter, and so I, I find Peter's logic easy to follow. I mean, the, the, the points I, to me are just kind of clear. And so this is not, this is not like rocket science to, to, to think deeply about what Peter is saying to us. The first I think, point of application for us is that Christians should expect suffering as normal and part of God's good and gracious will for their lives. So I'll say that one more time. We got it up on the screen. Christians should expect suffering as normal and part of God's good and gracious will 
for their lives. So look again at verse 12. It says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. So don't be shocked when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is wanting to encourage and to prepare for the future this idea that suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. And not only is it just normal, it's not like something that God is reacting to and, you know, something comes upon his children, kind of like a cold or a fever would come upon our children. Like, oh gosh, where did, how did that happen? Oh, I should have, you know, I should have not taken them to that, you know, jump house where they have all those little balls and those jumping jack things where there's just like, you know, decades of mucus and disease and bacteria like caked together. And boy, if I would have known, if I, if I would have thought about that, I would have prevented it and I wouldn't have taken my kid so that they have a runny nose for the next 14 weeks. No, no, that's not happening with God. So not only is it normal, but it is part of, did you catch verse 19? It is part of God's will. Verse 19 again, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. So the contrast there is according to God's will in contrast with let you not suffer for being an idiot or a sinner. So there's two types of suffering. Suffering for being a knucklehead, which even then God providentially certainly can use because he works all things together for his glory. So God's even kind to, to be with us when we're knuckleheads. But what, what, what or sinners or meddlers or thieves, but what, what Peter has in view here is that, is that not only is suffering normal, it is part of God's good design for the Christian. And when we act shocked at persecution or scorn or suffering for being a Christian, we demonstrate that, I think we demonstrate that we haven't fully grasped the implications of what it means to be the follower of a man who was crucified as a criminal of the state. This is what Jesus says in John 16, verse 3. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Peter is clearly saying to us, and Jesus is clearly saying to us, that suffering is normal. And suffering is not outside of God's gracious design for his children. I like to just kind of compare. I, one of the ways that I think I'm, I learn and I am encouraged is by listening to the testimony of other people. Uh, just by hearing them, because and this may sound bad, so if you're ever sharing your testimony um, around me and I'm being encouraged by it, don't think that I think you're like... Um, um, not a wonderful person, but 
one of the ways, like, I think I, I get through things is I, I look at other people and I'm like, you know, he's an average guy. He's just a regular dude like me. So if he can do it, I can do it, right? And so if you're sharing your testimony, don't think that I'm looking at you like, oh, that sorry joker can get through it. Well, so can I. I mean, so I'm not, that's, not, that's not the point I'm trying to make here, although as I was midway through that explanation, it kind of sounded like, it. oh, I'll never say anything around Brad anymore because he's going to think if that joker can get through it. But I'm encouraged by the testimony of ordinary people. And there is this witness of ordinary people in the book of Hebrews that I want to read. I think it's just so beautiful, it's self-explanatory. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10 about a group of people that are being commended by the writer of Hebrews. The way that they endure trial and suffering in their context, in their present reality. And what's going on, one of the major contexts or themes of the book of Hebrews, it's similar to 1 Peter, is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are undergoing persecution for turning from their old ways of Judaism to Christ, and now they are being encouraged by some Jewish friends to turn away from Jesus and back to the Old Testament way of living, and they're enduring some persecution for that. In fact, some very drastic persecution for that. And so let's just take this truth of Peter, that Christians should expect suffering as a normal part of God's good and gracious will for their lives. And let's just look at the example of some ordinary, nameless, anonymous people that the writer of Hebrews sets up for us as a beautiful example. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, in other words, after you heard the gospel and came to trust in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Let me read that sentence again. How does that work? Here, take my stuff. For you had compassion on those in prison. By the way, it's not super connected to the text today, but there is a group of guys from Crosspoint that go faithfully every Sunday to minister to people in prison, inmates in prison at the Muskogee County Jail. Chris McGuire has been faithfully doing that for a long time. He's got a bunch of guys from the church doing that. If you are interested in being part of that ministry, find Chris McGuire, and, um, and he will help you do that. It says, let me read it again, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How Real must heaven have been and Christ have been to those people that when their stuff was getting taken, they're saying, that's okay. I've got a better inheritance. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come 
and will not delay. Meaning Jesus is coming to set every injustice straight. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Wow. Wow. Friends, this has been the experience of Christians for the ages. This, in fact, is the experience of a great number of Christians even today. And let's just confess, can we just confess something? That most of us in our context in modern day America are completely unfamiliar with this type of setting and context. And maybe in the coming years, we will not be unfamiliar with this type of context. And maybe one of the most helpful things we can do for our life in Christ is to prepare our lives for this type of setting. And I'm not saying that as a sort of agent of doom or anything like that because God is on the throne and we are guaranteed victory. But friends, let's not be lulled to sleep by comfort and padded chairs and air conditioning. I mean, come on. Some of you get distracted when the air conditioning thing kicks on because it's like built in 1940. (laughs) I wonder if they know that's distracting. (laughs) Yes, yes, we we do know it's distracting. (laughs) We do. We we do. Yeah. (laughs) Friends, this world is not our home. And as Americans in the most comfortable, lavish setting in the history of civilization, we need to be on guard to not love this present reality more than Christ. And we cannot do that alone. Like, we can't fight that gravitational pull to ease and comfort and self-absorption by ourselves. That's why we need each other. Christians should expect suffering as normal and part of God's good and gracious will for their lives. Point number two. It's not just sort of this theoretical topic out there. It lands in our life and does something for us internally. Suffering, according to God's will, serves to deepen our joy and purify us. Suffering, according to God's will, serves to deepen our joy and purify us. Let's look again at Peter's logic in verses 13 and 14. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So Peter is saying that when when we endure difficulty in this life because we're Christians, because of the stand of for the gospel that we're taking, or because we're saying no to a broken world, or because we're trying to preach the gospel or share the gospel or communicate the gospel or we're trying to fight for 
God's glory in our context and we suffer according to that, there's actually joy in that because we are more like Jesus in that moment than we are when we're just enjoying his blessing of comfort. And there's nothing, I think this is implicit in Peter's logic, there's nothing more satisfying or joyful than being like Jesus, who was the happiest, most fulfilled, joyful human being who ever lived. Listen to Paul's view of his affliction and what it did for him. He writes this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. This is a this is a really important couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we... There it is. <laughs> All right, let me start again. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. Listen to this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been to a point where it's like, oh, like it might be better if I just die. <laughs> That's where Paul is. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And what does Paul say was the reason for all of this? Oh, friends, listen to this last sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen to Paul's logic. He's saying we were at wit's end. We wanted to give up. We thought that we had the death sentence. In fact, it felt like it would be better if we died. And that wasn't the enemy orchestrating that event. God was behind it in his gracious fatherly disposition towards us so that we would rely more on him than on our comfort. Friends, that hardly needs any explanation at all. God, there's this Spurgeon quote. It just came to my mind. I don't have it on the screen. He says something along the lines of, Jesus often rides on the black horse of affliction to wean us from this world and woo us to heaven. Oh, Friends, it doesn't mean that we should be masochists or that we should detach from reality or run into pain or suffering or affliction. But know that if you are in Christ, God has a fatherly disposition towards you in all things, and he serves, he uses those afflictions to serve us, to deepen our joy, and to purify us. And did you notice that tricky little 
17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, where it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Friends, I don't think that means that Christians are going to be judged for their sins because Jesus has been judged for our sins once and for all. Jesus has bore our punishment. And when we stand before Christ on that day, we will be in Christ for those of us who are trusting in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we will not face any condemnation. That's what the Bible says in Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not going to be judged. Christ was judged for us and was judged righteous. And now that righteousness is ours. I think what's happening here is that we are being purified through God using these afflictions and sufferings in our life to be like a a refiner's fire that burns off all of the little things in our life that are still like clinging to this world. And God uses the heat of circumstances to burn off impurities in our life. And Peter refers to it here as judgment that God in his fatherly disposition purifies his people through suffering and affliction. And if we have to go through difficulty for God's gracious purpose, that we know ends in joy, then how bad will life be for those who have to go through affliction and it ends in a much more severe affliction? and separation from God forever. Which brings us into the third and final point I think is implicit in this text, and I think it's, it's a major theme running through the entire book of 1 Peter, in fact, through the entire Bible. And I think it's important for us to remember this. And it is that the world hates the message of the gospel. Why were these Christians suffering? Because they were, you know, handing out toys at Christmas? Is that ultimately why Christians suffer? No. Because they were building wells in Africa? No. And those are wonderful things to do. But the world hates the gospel because the gospel is clear that we are sinners and that Jesus is the only way back to a right relationship with our creator God. And friends, that is offensive. That is offensive. And maybe one of the reasons, this is just my speculation, maybe one of the reasons the American church doesn't suffer the type of persecution that we see in other parts of the world or we see in the Bible is because the American church, by and large, has lost the gospel and doesn't actually preach the gospel and just preaches kind of a life 2.0. These are the ways that God can help you have a better, more fulfilling life and be a better person. If you will just work on anger management or be a better husband or be a better Johnny or be a better Susie, and be kinder, and gentler, and tuck in your shirt, and comb your hair, and smile, and just have a positive attitude, and bless people with your words, your life will go better. 
But friends, that message does not, it falls short of the gospel. Not to say that, that we shouldn't be sweet, nice people when, when we can. But the message of the gospel offends because it confronts a world that is steeped in trust in itself. And the gospel comes and it confronts the world. It confronts our fallen flesh. And it says that there are only two types of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And we must turn from trusting in our own righteousness. We must turn from broken, counterfeit pleasures that destroy us. And we must turn towards Christ who alone can satisfy, who alone can save. So friends, what it means to be a Christian is to turn away from self-trust and to trust in Jesus alone for your right standing with God. And that is not just an American religion or a Western ethic or a morality of this thing called Christianity. It is the message of the creator God to all of creation. It is not just a way, it is the way. The way. And the moment you get clear about the gospel, the world will be offended. And so it, it makes me ask questions about myself. Am I, am I preaching that type of gospel? Am I bold with the gospel? Do... Do we love people enough to be willing to suffer? Am I driven more by the fear of man, wanting to be liked and accepted, than I am about being clear about who Jesus is in a culture that is broken and lost? So what's this look like in our lives? Well, maybe you're a, a young soldier at Fort Benning, and God has not called you to be a knucklehead, or to be um, abrasive or unhelpful. But he's called you to be a young lieutenant or a young NCO in a very dark place called an infantry battalion or an, ar an armor. Or what do you guys call yourselves in the armor? What do you tank guys? Squadron, troop, something like that with your cute little hats and your boots. I'm, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that was totally, Drew, I'm sorry, that was totally unnecessary. Squadron, squadron, okay. <laughs> that, not funny, I'm sorry. It was cheap, it was cheap and unprovoked. Maybe you're a, a soldier in an infantry battalion or an armor squadron. And you're in that dark, desperate place. Like, have your heart broken for lost soldiers. And you need to get busy about understanding what the real gospel is. Like you need, to, you need to bury your head in this book and you need to get around older men that have, that have learned this gospel well and can articulate it and can share it and can bring it up in conversation. And you need to see your placement in that situation as being God's sovereign plan for you to be a light bearing, a torch for what every one of these soldiers needs. And so you need to think about it. It needs to be on the front of your mind, like comfort and recreation and leave and vacation. Those things are, are wonderful, but what, what is the, what is like, 
Like the thing on the frontal lobe of our brains, like am I here to, to be thinking about how God might use me to be a witness and, and that witness may attend with suffering and scorn, but, but I'm here to do that so that I can find my place in, in the great redemptive plan of God to be a witness for his light. Which, and when that happens, friends, there's nothing more satisfying than being like Jesus in that place. Maybe, maybe you're a businessman at Aflac or CB&T in the same things, different setting, shirts and ties, not ACUs, computers and not rifles, but you are in a dark place where people are chasing after the broken idol of success and money and self. And God has you there not to just sort of float up the corporate ladder and acquire more leave and more stock and a bigger house and ladder up the real estate chain. God has you there, brother, to be somebody that is willing to die to the fear of man that is in all of us so that you might be a winsome, wise, clear, gracious, loving representative of the news that these lost people need to hear. Maybe you are a young mother and you are in a context with a bunch of other young moms whose hearts are barraged with broken notions of femininity in our culture. And all of these young moms are getting together for these little play dates and, and their hearts are beaten down because of the world telling them that they have to be this, 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 and this. And maybe you, young lady, young mother, dear sister, are in that context to be a gospel voice to help them say no to the idols of this culture and yes to Christ and satisfaction in him. And maybe instead of just kind of going along with the flow of the course of the conversation, you drop the gospel stink bomb in the middle of the play date and say, no, 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 we are not going to inhale this fume of our culture any longer. What does that look like? Like, top of mind, like awareness that the gospel is there, like in our heart, in our mind, all the time. And when that happens, yes, we will be scorned, we will be the awkward person, whatever, but you know what else happens? Something beautiful. God uses it to bring life to his people, and the spirit of glory rests on us, and there is nothing more satisfying than being like Jesus. So, friends, let us who suffer according to God's will entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May God make this room full of people who are willing to be awkward, willing to give up comfort, willing to reject broken notions of worldly success, willing to be more satisfied in Christ than in the applause of a broken, idolatrous culture so that God might use our feeble words to bring life to his people and joy in our hearts. May this room be full of those people.
full of those people. And as we suffer insults for the name of Jesus, may it anchor us deeper and deeper into joy in Christ and eternity with him. Friends, let's pray. Fathers, we come now to see the gospel be preached through the testimonies and the baptism of five of our dear friends from this church. Would you, would you help us now see clearly the beauty of the gospel, the offense of the gospel? Lord, if there are people in this room who have not trusted in Jesus, Lord, would you confront them? Would you even offend them with your Holy Spirit and show them that they are not just living a less than optimal life, they are living a life that is headed towards destruction and folly and despair and everlasting separation and condemnation from their Creator. And their only hope is to turn away from themselves, to turn away from trusting in their own filthy rags of morality, and to look to Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who bore your wrath on the cross for all the sin of all the people that would ever turn and trust in him. And he satisfied your holiness, and then he rose again in victory over death and the grave, and now is alive and intercedes for us and commands all people everywhere, every boy, every girl, every old man, every old lady, everyone in between to turn from themselves and to trust in him for life and joy and satisfaction evermore. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not done that and by your Holy Spirit it's become clear, Lord, would you give them the gift faith and repentance so that they can run to Jesus and find joy. And for the rest of us, God, would you anchor us deeper in the fear of God so that we would reject the fear of man? And would we fight for joy and satisfaction in Christ? And would we revel in the baptism of our, of our friends this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.